Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Welcome to the inaugural Grassroots Candidate Forum. I'm Thomas Huda, host of the Broken Glass Podcast. And I am Patty Rose, host of the Spent the Rent Podcast. Today is a joint episode broadcast live on YouTube and also afterwards in audio form wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review both the Broken Class and Spent the Rent Podcast for local Lane County area coverage. We're pleased to be joined by candidates here in Oregon's 4th Congressional District. Grassroots movements require collective action on a local level and are dependent on coalition building to create change. As two working class Lane County independent media personalities, we believe everyone should have a voice in their community. In this historic open race for the seat held by Congressman Peter DeFazio for 37 years, 10 days ago, we invited every candidate in every party who filed for the seat. It is an honor to be joined by these four candidates in alphabetical order, Andrew Kalick, Jake Matthews, John Selker, and Tommy Smith. Although Val Hoyle could not attend and Alex Carlados did not respond at all, Sammy Alabdabra and Doyle Canning had prior scheduling conflicts. Doyle was able to provide a recorded message that we will play after all of the candidates' opening statements, and Sammy has asked our listeners to direct any questions to his campaign website, sammyforcongress.com. We will also hear from Congressman Peter DeFazio himself speaking about the district. Each candidate will provide an opening statement of up to three minutes and a closing statement of up to two minutes. During each question, candidates will have up to 90 seconds to respond. We will randomize the speaking order, which will remain the same throughout the debate, although we will rotate who speaks first with each question. At some point, there will be one lightning round where candidates will respond by raising their hands. Uh, I know that not all of you like to keep your cameras on all the time. You can also raise hand with the Zoom function. And we will note aloud who has done so for the audio listeners. We plan on covering a wide range of topics, some of which are unaddressed in other forums. With only one question per topic, we encourage you to reach out to candidates to further explore their positions. Listen closely to the questions. Listen closely to the questions because they will only be read once up front and then once before the third candidate responds to refresh your memory. We will now begin with opening statements. Thomas will randomly select the order from the debate out of a hat. The first will be, and I'll say the whole order now, Andrew Kalick. The second person in the order will be Tommy Smith. T.S., I'm writing these on Sharpies. So it'll be Andrew Kalick followed by Tommy Smith, followed by John Selker, followed by Jake Matthews. That will be the order for the debate. And 
we welcome Andrew Kalik to give your three minute, up to three minute opening statement. Thanks so much, Thomas. Thank you, Patty. And thank you to my fellow candidates. As I've said at many of these forums, it is an extremely difficult thing uh, to run for any office. Um, it's a privilege, but it is hard. Uh, and I'm grateful to be once again on the stage, the virtual stage with each of you. My name is Andrew Kalik. I'm the son of school teachers. I'm a father of three kids under five. Uh, I'm a former ACLU attorney, and I am running for Congress to bring an independent mind and a new generation of leadership to DC. As a millennial, I'll be at a geriatric millennial, I have faced many of the challenges that are uh, common to younger Americans. I graduated from law school with about $150,000 of student debt. Uh, it took over a decade uh, or just about a decade to pay that off. Uh, as a result, I couldn't afford to purchase a home uh, until my late 30s. Uh, and on the first of every month, we get a childcare bill that runs in the thousands. We are among the most privileged millennials you'll find. We are the lucky ones. We can pay those bills, but so many can't. And whether it's millennials trying to pay off student debt or seniors trying to pay for uh, their prescription drugs or anybody else in our society uh, who is facing the cost of living crisis from gas to groceries, housing to healthcare, we clearly uh, have huge challenges facing our community. But we also have the means to solve them. America is a rich nation. And we need Congress to do more to solve the cost of living crisis for people. That means having a tax code that works. That means, believe it or not, having Medicare negotiate prescription drug prices instead of kowtowing to the pharmaceutical industry. It means tackling climate change in a way that is just and equitable in our communities. I have experience on all sorts of different uh, issues from my time at the ACLU, my time in government, and my time in the private sector. And I'm hoping to bring all of those experiences to DC. The last thing I want to mention is as a millennial, I have grown up in an era in which politics have become increasingly polarized, increasingly partisan, and increasingly poisonous. And that has done nothing to enable Congress to actually achieve the results that we need, and it's done nothing to bring the country together to solve collective problems. In fact, it's tearing at the fabric of what makes our democracy great. We need a new generation of leadership in D.C. that understands that and is willing and committed to solving it, one conversation at a time. And so whether it's going around to every single city in this district, having grassroots discussions with people, or raising over $275,000, all from individual contributors, I am committed to leading by example. That's not something you can say about everybody in this race, and it's certainly not something you can say about politics as usual. I'm Andrew Kalik. I'm grateful to be here and I hope to earn your vote. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. The next uh, opening statement is from, is it Tommy Smith? Uh, thank you, Thomas and Patty for having me. Um, like you said, my name is Tommy Smith. Uh, please call me Tommy. Um, I'm a local kid here from Willamette Valley, graduated from Willamette High School. Uh, two weeks after graduating Willamette, I joined the Navy as an air traffic controller. The whole entire time I was gone, I just couldn't wait to get back home. This is where my heart is. This is where I belong. And this is where I want to serve. Um, after graduating or after leaving the Navy, I went to school at Lane Community College, graduated, transferred to University of Oregon, where I got my business degree. After um, graduating University of Oregon, I bought a business that was failing and turned it around to profit within three months. Once again, the very first thing you should know about me is that I am a faith-driven person. Um, I'm not the world's best Christian. I probably cuss and drink too much. 
but I at least try to walk a walk. And I'm not trying to force my beliefs on other people because it's hard enough to walk my walk. But as such, you know, as a person of God or someone of faith who is trying, you know, my sole job is to love thy God with my mind, heart, body, and soul, and to love thy neighbor. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to serve. You know, I believe I'm the only one who said I will not take any donations over $100. I um, am one of the first ones to talk about Native American um, issues during this candidacy. Um, I just believe that we, like um, Andrew said, that we need a new generation. We need a new type of politician. You know, business as usual is not cutting it. We need someone to go in there that can talk to people the way they need to be talked to. A, fun, a nice reminder about how politics need to work. And so I'm asking you, talk to your friends, go to my Facebook page, ask me questions. I'm more willing to have a conversation because that's what we need more in, the, in this country. We need to have conversations. Whoever you vote for, if it's not for me, then it's got to be somebody who can talk to the other side, who can reach across the aisle, who can talk to a Trump supporter, somebody who is red Republican and talk to them and be able to talk to them about the issues that are going on. Talk to them honestly and truthfully about everything. Because, you know, Alex is coming in strong. She's already raised up $1.7 million for this um, candidacy. We got to stop them. So if you don't vote for me, make sure it's somebody who can definitely reach across the aisle. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for having me on. And let's have a nice, honest talk. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Tommy. Now an opening statement from John Selker. Thanks so much, you guys, for putting this on. What a treat. Um, and what a treat to be on this on with all these great candidates. The fourth district depends on agriculture, forestry, high-tech, tourism, and services. And our representative needs to have deep knowledge in each of these areas, in my opinion. I bring 40 years of diverse experience in Oregon as a college student, carpenter, maintenance man, electronics designer, mechanical designer, agricultural engineer, 31 years as an educator. I was an extension agent for 10 years, earth scientist, medical advocate, and a small business owner. My family has always been devoted to social justice, and I'm known for being truthful, straightforward, kind, hardworking, and most of all, a problem solver, effective at finding win-win solutions to pressing problems. 6,000 members of my scientific society voted for me as their president, and I have broad Democratic support, but also Republican support. Just in the last week, a forest scientist sent me a message uh, talking about his deep support from the years we've worked together. And a Republican farmer who owns over 20,000 acres in the valley expressed his support for me, also a Republican. The point is, I really hope to have a full vote in November, not just the far left or the party faithful. This is what we need to win. My priorities, of course, climate change is at the top of my list. And the thing is, I know how we can reverse it. That's what I study. But being an earth scientist, I would be the only earth scientist in either the House or the Senate. And as well, I'd be the only PhD engineer in either the House or the Senate. And in that sense, I think I'll have outsized impact in terms of bringing new ideas and bringing correct uh, ideas to, uh, to the House. Medical care is key to me. It's way too expensive for everybody, and it's totally unaffordable for over a quarter of us. I was the primary caregiver for my wife after her tremendous accident, and I learned all about what needs to change in at least much of your health care, and a lot of it is doable. Education is a huge issue for me. I've been an educator for over three decades. 
And for me, I think we have to start with age three and go right through community college as completely free. It should be not a question. It, this is what we need to do. Further, I mean, things like the, the $15 minimum wage, I want to advocate for women's right and equal pay, insist on legal protections uh, for any discrimination based on race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation. I believe we do need to control our spending and we need to be responsible at our spending. I want to reverse Citizens United. We just saw in the last two weeks, $8 million fall into Oregon primary races. This is horrific. So um, I'm a father, a husband, an educator, a scientist, a woodworker, an environmentalist, a business owner, and an advocate for justice. I will put every fiber of my being and my Quaker lived experience into transforming the current divisiveness and moving us collectively to be a problem-solving body. Thanks very much. Thank you, John. Thank Selker. you, John. Now an opening statement from Jake Matthews. Oh, Jake, you're still muted. Thank you, John. Hey, guys, my name is Jake Matthews. Just think of the most Indian name you can think of, and you'll get Jake Matthews right there. Our district is unfortunately in a lot of trouble, and the key to this has always been economics. The uh, per capita in our district now is $24,000. Uh, meanwhile, your congressman makes $174,000 per year, never failing to vote for a raise for himself. And they've also been able to engage in insider trading. Uh, we have 64 congressmen who have actually beaten the S&P 500 in the last uh, session alone. The only people that suffer from this when this happens is you and me. We're not making our money. We're not able to have the financial freedom to make healthy decisions and to work on our ha uh, and to work on our happiness. But our Congress gets to do basically whatever they want. Um, I would like to introduce uh, term limits to Congress, which I've interviewed 2,000 people last year, and you know, overwhelmingly across the board, they have um, agreed on that. I want to completely end insider trading, and I want to peg the salary of our Congress people to what the per capita is of their respective districts. So if we make money, they make money. It'll um, encourage them and economically incentivize them to bring in more, better, higher paying jobs into our district. We can say a lot of really nice things today. The problem is nothing will get done from any of us unless we completely fix how Congress is designed. Congress right now cannot keep up with how fast paced the world is moving. That's why we're now susceptible to cybersecurity, malware, ransomware. We've already seen some evidence of it across uh, the Southeast with their gasoline issues. Um, and uh, the big one is coming soon. It's going to be like another 9-11. And we have to have a Congress that is actually ready for it and not people that don't know how you know, cookies work on your browser. Um, Congress consistently has a 19% approval rating. And they give us some cute idioms to say, like, don't trust your Congress, but you can love your congressman. It's not cute anymore. If you had a 90% approval rating and 90% at your job, you'd be fired overnight via email. So I'd like to completely fix Congress for you and me. I'd like to introduce something called uh, the Fairness Doctrine, which was repealed uh, under Reagan, which would hold journalists accountable for what they report so that they, so they can't engage in sensational, uh, in sensational news, which is, which is basically leading us to an era of complete mass psychosis where the only people that suffer, once again, are you and me. Um, we have a lot of jobs that could come to Oregon, space colonization, the Gigafactory, things like that. And I want to propose something called a green, renewable, smart city. They're actually being built all over the world right now, Latin America, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, and right here in the U.S., in the state of Arizona. Um, those are jobs that can come here that would bring our per capita by 2030 to $100,000. See, my clock is expiring, and I'm only halfway through my statement, so I'll stop here. 
Thank you, Jake. Yeah, you got I it. will mention that Steve Label is on the ballot, but has not responded to our invitation nor many of the invitations um, for forums. Uh, I will now play a pre-recorded message from Doyle Canning by sharing my screen here. After that, you will hear a special message from the congressman for the current for the district himself. Peter DeFazio. Hey everybody, this is Doyle Canning. I wasn't able to join you for the Grassroots Forum this afternoon. I'm out on the campaign trail. It's our Earth Day weekend of action, but I wanted to send you a message about who I am and why I'm running for Congress. I want to start with a story about when I was a very young girl. I grew up in an abusive environment and household, and when things got really bad in our home, my mother would tell me to run to the neighbors. From my neighbors, I learned the value of solidarity, community, and that when our systems fail us, we have to come together and support each other. But I also learned that there are two systems of justice in our country, because when my mom called the police and pled for action, they just looked the other way. That wasn't the case for my neighbors in the black neighborhood where we lived. That's what put me on a path to be a community organizer, go to law school, and eventually run to represent you in Congress. I'm running to fight for the progressive priorities that our district holds dear and that I've been fighting for for my entire career. Bold climate action, a single-payer Medicare for all healthcare system in America, investments in affordable housing. And that's why I'm so proud to have the support of over a dozen environmental leaders and organizations, every Medicare for All organization that's endorsed in this race, and Housing First UMQA, a grassroots organization working on the ground in Douglas County to deliver solutions for housing now. That's the kind of leadership and the kind of movement that we need to beat Alex Scarlatos in the 2022 election. I'm running because I know that we run a grave risk as Democrats of pitting one establishment hand-picked billionaire-backed candidate against another establishment-picked billionaire-backed uh, candidate. And as Democrats, if we, want to if we want to win in this difficult midterm election, we need to get out and talk to voters about what we are for what our party stands for and stands strong in our values. That's why we're out here knocking doors today and why we're talking to voters up and down the district. And that's why my campaign accepts no funds from the fossil fuel industry, big pharma, big corporations or corporate lobbyists, because I know that our district deserves a Democrat who is unbought by the insiders in Washington and unafraid to buck the party when necessary and to provide bold, progressive leadership now. I would be so grateful for your vote. You can learn more about our campaign at canningforcongress.com. Reach out to us anytime and please join us. Get involved. Thank you so much. So I'm here with Congressman Peter DeFazio, one of the most uh, effective and influential federal legislature, le legislators in Oregon history. And uh, what is your message to the district? Uh, well, thanks, Thomas. Uh, what I tell people is there are some candidates running who say this is slam dunk for Democrat. It's not. Uh, in this election year, which is not going to be great for Democrats, this is going to be a very tough race. Scarlatos is uh, unopposed in the primary, has already raised $1.6 million, uh, and uh, we need someone 
who is experienced, has won tough races, and can keep this seat for the Democratic Party in a difficult year. And I'm not going to go on to my endorsement here because <laughs> this is your podcast and you're going to interview candidates. But just think about that. It's not a slam dunk. It's not a left-leaning district. It's mm. basically a toss-up. So make your decisions appropriately. Well, thank you for weighing in. All right. Thank you for watching that or listening to that. So we will move on to the first question of the debate. The question will go to Tommy Smith and will follow by John Selker, Jacob Matthews, and Andrew Kallick. Tommy Smith, if you've ever listened to Broken Class, you know that I always ask this question right off the bat. What is a controversial opinion that you have about anything? Uh, coffee is disgusting. Uh, a lot of people, even to this day, tell me that, well, when you grow up, you'll like coffee. And I've grown up and I hate coffee. Um, another thing that I find that probably going to be a little bit controversial is I think uh, Kate Brown has given been given a hard time for trying to do her job. Um, she hasn't made always the right decisions or everything else like that. But I think people um, throw a little bit too much hate towards her. It's tough to be in a position of power and trying to do the best for you for the people that you're supposed to be serving and you don't always make the best decisions. So I think that's probably one of the main things I probably would say that most people probably wouldn't agree with that. I just think that Kate Brown has been kind of served a cold dish when she's been, been doing the best that she can. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. Same question, John Selker. Well, you know, I, I give this a lot of thought and, you know, I think back to my career and I, I did write the papers on Yucca Mountain where we showed that Yucca Mountain was a lousy place to store nuclear waste. And, and that could be a controversial thing because we don't have a place to store nuclear waste. And so that came close to the top of my list. And I thought, no, 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 Yucca Mountain is important. But Hanford, you know, that's where we proved that the contaminants were moving laterally, not vertically. We showed that the contaminants were going much further than we thought. And it also carried the plutonium on these, these particles. And that was pretty important, pretty controversial. But no, no. No. Thinking about it, it really comes down to the rolling stop. Now, this is a part of bicycling where you're coming to a stop sign, and it's called the Idaho stop. And we've fought this for years because the thing is, if you put your feet on the ground and you got to start again, it's a very unstable situation on a bicycle. Whereas if you keep a little momentum, you can look left and look right and you can get across the street very efficiently. Now, it took years for Oregon to get to this level of having the rolling stop in, you know, ensconced in law. It's great. At the federal level, I'm really thinking the rolling stop is a critical issue. So, of course, there is the nuclear waste thing. There's the, you know, uh, you know, the Yuck Mountain and whatnot. And then there's the, the fish restoration work. But honestly, I think we've got to put the rolling stop much higher than we have in the past. So that's a controversial issue. A lot of drivers are having a hard time with it. But here in Oregon, I think we've once again showed we can do these hard things and make those changes. Thank you, John. Question is, what is a controversial opinion that you have any, uh, about anything? Jake Matthews. Uh, I love this question. So I love that you've been asking this uh, during your podcast. We are a species in our adolescence. If I could convince the human race of anything, uh, this isn't a controversial opinion. It's actually scientific fact at this point. If you look at the cosmic calendar, the human race is a species in their adolescence. We have incredible, incredible potential as a civilization to live to our complete fullest potential and to maximize our happiness index, but we don't do it. 
because we're being held hostage to the news and to the government that doesn't have a vision for that, doesn't have the critical faculties to navigate the science around it, while the scientists are all being completely muzzled on the topics. We have an education system that is completely failing the average student, leaving them by the wayside and going purely for profit, which look, profit is great. My plan is to make the per capita here at $100,000. But why do you need the money? You need the money to work towards your human happiness. It can help you when you have a chance just to breathe here. Um, we are actually able to solve things like war, rape, uh, culture, murder, climate change, uh, you know, wrongfully executed, you know, black people who are just being pulled over for like a traffic stop, you have cops that are dying unnecessarily. There's something called the uh, Connectome Project, which, um, which Obama funded, which will help actually map out the human brain, all 86 billion neurons. And it'll give you like a blueprint of why you are the way that you are. And those decisions lead to things like homelessness, crime, murder, uh, depression, schizophrenia. This will be the next space race and we have the money for it. Thank you, Jake. Uh, same question, Andrew Kallick. Uh, you can take the kid out of New England, but you can't take away those <clears throat> deep-seated sporting allegiances. So two out of 82 games a year in the Adams-Kallick household when the Blazers and the Celtics are playing, I'll be in all green. Um, and that might not be as controversial as it was in you know New York or Los Angeles, but uh, still a little controversial. Um, on, on policy, my my controversial view, and I hope and I think it shouldn't be controversial, is that many of the policies that we look to in America as being great for retirement security or saving for college or home ownership are actually huge giveaways to the upper class. And so if we look at whether it's the mortgage interest deduction, 529 college savings accounts, even 401ks, the vast majority of benefits of these programs, taxpayer-funded benefits, go to the top 10 to 20% of Americans. We have to fix that in government. We have to focus on the programs that help people on the lower end of the income spectrum, like the earned income tax credit, like the child tax credit. And so if I'm in Congress, I'm going to be taking a very hard look at those programs that for a long time have been sacrosanct in America, but they really need reform if we're going to get uh, resources in the hands of people who need it the most. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew. Our next question is on housing. Patrick? So we had some uh, submitted questions from locals. Uh, this question is from Vince from Eugene. It is, most Oregonians desire a greater supply of affordable housing as well as a greater amount of homeownership. What is your position on the various costs and regulations for builders who want to profit from building units like condominiums? And we're starting with John Selker, is that correct? Right. <clears throat> housing is, I mean, absolutely everywhere I go, housing is the top issue of the people I talk to. Um, you know, Sutherland, Oregon, they, they can't afford to live in houses in Sutherland, Oregon. It's very rural. Um, the economics are, well, first off, uh, the COVID uh, crisis led to a slowdown in all sorts of materials, and that led to very, very steep increases in all sorts of costs of lumber, appliances, everything else. And then the vacancy rate uh, with those uh, limitations went down from 7%, which was considered, considered critical, down to, to 3% now. And there simply isn't the housing stock uh, needed to, to be able to house, uh, to give people the opportunity to, to get housing in a, in a, in a fair market. A, fr a good friend of mine just was accepted to take a, to get a, a rental house 
he went to sign the paperwork and the guy says, oh, did I tell you the rent just went up yesterday by 250 bucks a month? Why? Because someone else had offered 250 more than this guy had offered above asking. And now my friend was priced out of a house. This is just horrible. And so we absolutely have to, um, and, and I talk about it more on my website, we have to get government funds to help bring the prices down and make sure that the competitive market has the, the stock at the bottom end to, to house all the people who need housing. Next is Jake Matthews. Patrick is still muted, so I'll say next question goes to Jake Matthews. Same question. Thanks. Yeah, um, I'm proposing something called a green renewable smart city. Uh, they're being built in Saudi Arabia, Latin America, and right here in Arizona. Like I said, it's uh, it's actually the way that people are going to be living in the future. And we're now um, ahead of the bell curve on this. So our constituency can get ahead of this and be like a beacon for the whole world on how we can make um, affordable housing in a city that is designed circularly and not linearly so that the waste is you know uh, reduced by about 72% here. This will feature um, eco villas that use 72% less energy than a normal uh, than a normal home, a three square mile solar array, uh, solar array, low carbon cement, 90% recycled, 90% um, recycled aluminum, uh, water energy consumption will be down by 40%. And the homes cost about $200,000 for a 400 square foot eco villa that'll solve the housing crisis and put 40,000 kilowatts of energy back into the national grid. Uh, this is not a problem that can't be solved. It's actually quite easy to. It just takes people who actually believe in making progress instead of, you know, infighting for a political gain. We're seeing the economics of it, by the way, in these other countries, and they've been working on it for about six to eight years now. So we know what works for them and what doesn't, and we can just use what works. So we're already on ahead of the curve here. Thank you, Jake. Uh, yep. Did you want me to repeat the question, Thomas? As a standard, I think we should repeat it after the second um, before the third okay. answer. So the question is from Vince of Eugene. Most, most Oregonians desire greater supply of affordable housing as well as the greater amount of home ownership. What is your position on the various costs and regulations for builders who want to profit from building units like condominiums? And I think we're at uh, Andrew. Yep. Um, great question, Vince. Thank you. Uh, in short, the rules and regulations around building housing are way, way too onerous. Uh, and you can see that in the fact that we have not even recovered from the financial crisis when it comes to the number of homes uh, that need to be built in Oregon. And in fact, Oregon now has the second fewest housing units per capita in America. That's what drives housing affordability challenges in our state and across the country, uh, and we need to do better. But of course, it's not just about red tape for builders. It's about all sorts of things. And you can read a lot of the ideas that I have on housing affordability at my website, which is andrewcallick.com. But I'll just mention a couple, and that is that right now we have a tax code. Uh, once again, it's that, it's that pesky tax code uh, that supports luxury development and millionaire homes as opposed to truly supporting permanent affordable housing. That needs to be inverted. We need to modify that tax code, particularly the Opportunity Zone Tax Credit Program, and make sure that it's supporting permanent affordable housing and a voucher system in America that truly works for lower income people. Because the truth is, even if we build enough, there will be poor people in America who cannot afford market rent. They need access to vouchers. Right now, there are years-long waiting lists for vouchers in many uh, cities, including Eugene. Uh, and it, with the tax code that works, we can fully fund those vouchers instead of continuing to fund luxury development that doesn't need it. Thanks. 
Thank you, Andrew. And next we have Tommy Smith. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Vince, for that question. That's a really important question, isn't it? There's a lot of people who can't get housing. I talked to a lady who, a customer of mine the other day who literally uh, had me help her set up a wire transfer to Iowa because she has to buy a house out there because she can't find housing here. Um, Vince, I don't know if you know this, but the city of Eugene was, is required or mandated to come up with a plan to help out with the um, housing crisis. And it's due, I believe, by the end of the month. The proposal is to get away, uh, give away or do away with some of the single uh, layer housing or single family housing or separate uh, housing dwellings. Um, I think we need to do more of that, especially with the limitation of um, of this area in particular with two rivers and the valley being surrounded by mountains, puts a little bit of a limitation on where we can build. We definitely need to set up programs or start a new transportation system to allow us to take people away from big cities and maybe go out more out in the countries to where more housing can be available. Because we can start building up all we want, but you know how it's going to ha happen is as soon as they get built, someone's going to sit there and go, well, the market rate is $2,000. That's what I'm going to charge, you know? So we need to do more as far as changing the zoning laws, making things available, and have uh, adequate transportation to lead people outside of the city. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tommy. The next question is on labor rights. It's a significant question. It's from Anthony of Springfield. We have a major issue in Oregon with dishonest contractors and wage theft. Whether it's not paying overtime, misclassifying workers, or underpaying workers on prevailing wage jobs, it's a major issue. By shorting workers their fair pay, it also means the state gets sorted tax revenue it would receive on those wages. To make things worse, those workers often need other support from the state due to their low wages, and that costs the taxpayers extra. An additional effect of this theft is that because they are making a huge profit margin, they can bid jobs lower and win the job over honest contractors. This creates a system that rewards bad actors with more work, hurts hardworking Oregonians, and unrightfully steals market share from honest contractors. How will you support hardworking Oregonians and fight wage theft and tax fraud? And I believe we're going to- Jake, I believe uh, is first. Jake. Yep. Thanks. Uh, there's something in economics called the uh, Gini coefficient, it's spelled G-I-N-I, and it shows uh, the wealth disparity. You can check it for a state, a country, you know, whatever you want. The higher that wealth disparity is, uh, which you need some wealth disparity, um, but the higher it is, the more homelessness you see, the more people you see who are falling victim to um, inflation and the higher pay as a percentage of the company the CEO makes versus a, a floor worker. Um, right now in America, especially here in our district, which is uh, the poorest district in Oregon, we have the highest Gini coefficient of the whole state. It's extremely high. That's why you see more homelessness now, more crime, more drug abuse, things like that. With the minimum wage coming to $15, that's not even close to a start there. Workers need to unionize and they need to be able to get a percentage of that company that's, uh, that's respective of the work input that they're putting in there. I'll make it illegal for those bad actors to you know, play their games with our workers. We're going to unionize and we're going to make sure that the workers have the rights that they need. Uh, we've been, this is essentially close to slave labor now. We're only making enough to barely make ends meet. And with inflation now at like nine to 10%, even if you did invest in something and you got a 7% return on investment that year, you saw your investment completely wiped out. The only people that actually benefit from this are the 
uh, of the complete 1%, which include the people in Congress trying to represent you. This doesn't get changed unless Congress suffers the way you and I suffer. None of it will get changed. That is a promise. They have to go through what you and I are going through every day. Thank you, Jake. Same question, Andrew Callick. Thank you, Anthony, for the question. Uh, this is something I've worked on pretty much my entire career. When I was in law school, uh, I spent uh, probably too many hours at the Legal Aid Bureau instead of studying. Uh, but one of the my jobs there was to represent people in unemployment hearings. Uh, often it was somebody who got fired uh, by a big company um, uh, improperly, and they were fighting for back pay. They were fighting to get their job back. Uh, when I was working for the controller in the city of New York, one of our duties was to track down contractors who had uh, who had screwed their workers. And we did that to the tune of millions of dollars, thousands of workers uh, who got uh, uh, money back. These are these were working class people, and that really made a huge difference to them. Uh, and then. You know, Jake makes a good point about an ownership society. Um, in my work at Airbnb, one of the things that we did was petition the Securities and Exchange Commission to allow us, before we became a public company, to distribute shares to the hosts in our in our community. Uh, and that made a huge difference to a lot of people who uh, turned to Airbnb for supplemental income. So I think that this is a, a really important issue. Finally, we have to fix structural problems in America's labor laws. That means passing things like the PRO Act. But more than anything else, what it means is giving these laws teeth. And what does that mean? It means raising the fines so that no longer is wage theft or misclassification simply the cost of doing business for big business in America. Let's make the fines really hurt. Let's hit companies where it hurts. Uh, and that'll inure to the benefit of workers. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew. I'll, I'll summarize the question since it's long. There's a major issue in Oregon with dishonest contractors and wage theft, workers not receiving fair pay. How will you support hardworking Oregonians and fight wage theft and tax fraud? Tommy Smith. Well, thank you for that question. Um, you know, I believe that we have a labor commissioner in, in this in this area who's supposed to be doing stuff like that and take care of things like that, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Just saying. But... Um, you know, the thing is, if these things are going on and I, I don't hire contractors all that much and I don't deal with contractors well that much. So I'm just going to be completely honest with you. This is the first time I'm hearing about it, you know, but as your congressman, I need to be open to hearing about these issues and figuring out a way to solve it. And my initial impression is that what Andrew said is that we need to have a way to give bigger teeth to those laborers um, who are being affected by this. They need to be able to to sound the alarm and um, whistleblow against those contractors who are going against them and stealing their wages, and then have actual investigative teams to look into it and solve the issue. I think I'm pretty close to my time. I don't see anything, but I'll just go ahead and. I apologize. You have about thirty seconds. Okay, no worries. I just didn't want to be like stealing time or anything. You know, uh, I really don't have a whole lot to say on this, only because I'm a little bit ignorant on this. Uh, if something like this is brought up to my attention, I'm going to do everything I can to find all the research I can on it and come up with a probable solution. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Tommy. you Tommy. Timer is ready to go again. And the uh, final answerer for this question is John Selker. Yeah. Um, these sorts of things, and here we're talking about labor theft, and, and, and this goes on not only with legally hired people, but also our illegal immigrants who are working in the fields and are completely exposed to all sorts of abuse. And it fits into a pattern that we have accepted in this country and we just have to stop accepting. And that is 
this idea that uh, poor administration and efficiency and inefficiency and this idea of management by incompetence. And this permeates, like for instance, the taxes we pay. And what we see is that the number of people working in the tax uh, enforcement area has dropped and dropped and dropped. And who's, by the way, getting away with most of it? Most of the richest people are the ones who have the most uh, violations of our tax law, and they've conveniently made it so there are no one to enforce it. In the same sense, our labor laws have to have the enforcement. And of course, the fines can pay for this. So these are things where the fines are typically far in excess of what it would cost to enforce it. Now, this is also true of our immigration system. When I teach at OSU and we have students who are trying to get visas, it's almost impossible simply due to inefficiency. Our country cannot be run by ineptitude. Our country has to take on these challenges and be efficient, enforce our laws, and take care of the workers, the immigrants, the renters, and other people who are currently being left behind just due to not investing in the systems we need to have in place. Thank you, John. The next question is about big money in politics. One month ago today, Republican Congressman from Alabama, Mo Brooks, made a town hall statement that made some headlines. He said, quote, special interest groups run Washington. If you want to be chairman of a major committee, you have to purchase it. And the purchase price for a major committee, like, say, Ways and Means, the minimum bid is a million dollars. And I'm talking literally here. He went on to say, quote, and you have to get it from the special interest groups. And with the special interest groups, there is a quid pro quo. Do you as candidates have a real strategy to build enough power to make everyday people the employers and bosses of, of representatives? The question goes first to Andrew Kalik. We're trying to run a campaign that is leading by example on this and many other things. So we've raised $275,000 now, all from individual donors. And that makes it, making that decision makes it a lot harder to raise money, no doubt about that. But it also gives people confidence uh, that the system is not rigged against them, that the person that they're electing is going to serve their interest. That's incredibly important. It's particularly important if you're a Democrat who thinks the government needs to work. If you are a conservative person who doesn't care if government works or doesn't on behalf of the working class, you don't care so much about the fabric of democracy. But if you really think it needs to, to work, it's time to walk the walk. And our party, the Democratic Party, has done anything but on this. We see it over and over again, whether it's big pharma buying Congress members to avoid uh, prescription drug negotiation, or whether it's big oil buying, buying them to, to avoid climate change um, uh, investment. We see it over and over again. So we need people to lead by example, and I am doing that. When it comes to campaign finance reform more broadly, we need to get dark money out of politics. We need to make sure that there is transparency so people understand how campaigns are being financed. Right now, there's a super PAC funded by crypto currency. It says, you know, paid for by Web3 forward, but nobody knows what that is. We need transparency and accountability with this. And we need voters to know where the money is coming from so that they can make their own choice about why these big interests are investing in certain candidates, but not others. Thank you, Andrew. Same question to Tommy Smith. You know, I've never run for public office uh, before. And the thing that I found that is people complain about this about running in and politics is about money. And thus far, that I've, all I've seen is, is about money. Just to get in the voter pamphlet, you have to pay $2,500 just to get in that. You know, we need to change how we do things. And, you know, 
the fact that that they ha- that they're buying a chair on a committee should infuriate people. I mean, that's the problem. That's the issue, isn't it? Is money. We need someone who goes out there and call them out on their BS. You know, who shouts to the rooftops of every building impossible to let them know who was willing to go into their district and let their constituents know what they're doing. I, I've seen, received one donation and it was from one of my best friends I've known since like the sixth grade. You know, I hope I don't really get any kind of donations, to be honest with you, because I think I can win this race without a bunch of money. I think it's just wor- hard work and determination and getting my name out there isn't good enough for me to win. And I'm going to, going to be the very first one to tell you that my two first two years, I'm going to go there not owing anyone anything. So all I have to do is work for my constituents. That's who I'm going to work for. And I'm not going to work for anybody else. I'm not going to sit on a bunch of phone calls trying to drum up money for the Democratic Party. I'm going to be working for you. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. I'll summarize the question. Uh, Rep- Republican Congressman Mo Brooks said at a town hall that special interest groups want run Washington. Uh, to be the head of a major committee, you need a lot of money, like at least a million dollars. Do you have a real strategy to build enough power to make everyday people the employers and bosses of their representatives? John Selker. This is, uh, you know, for a first time uh, uh, run at, at Congress, we really see a lot, I think, in this around the room here. Um, the most shocking thing was just in the last few weeks when uh, this cryptocurrency group uh, dumped uh, $6 million on the 6th District and dumped uh, at least $400,000 on Val Hoyle and, um, and, and, and $2 million in Texas on just a few candidates. They decided they'd swing those races. Shocking. And the cryptocurrency, it turns out every transaction on Bitcoin uh, has a carbon footprint as big as flying from Portland to, to D.C. and back. Uh, the, the, the energy cost of this cryptocurrency is phenomenal. So it's like, you know, Jordan Cove all over again, uh, but multiple times over. So what we're seeing is that these people think they can buy their way in. And what's beautiful about this race is that we are working hard. And, and Andrew and I and, uh, and you know, everyone shown on the screen is not taking any corporate money, not taking any PAC money, uh, not taking money uh, from corporations. And that's the message we have to be sticking to. It's a hard one. It's hard to be fighting an unequal race when you've got people who are accepting money um, that is essentially, and, and if you look at minute 730 in Val's uh, presentation to Benton County, she specifically said she takes money because people need access, that these people with money want access, and that's why she takes the money. So it is exactly as advertised, and I'm sorry to say that. Thank you, John. Same question to Jake Matthews. My folks came uh, here from India in 1979. Uh, India is extraordinarily corrupt when it comes to their, uh, when it comes to national politics. Um, and corruption in the third world is a huge problem. In America, we have legal corruption, uh, and it's called K Street lobbyists. Um, one of my degrees is in economics, not because I like it, but because it's what runs the world, unfortunately. And we have to focus on where the money is going. One of the first things that I started off with in this was talking about insider trading, which is allowed by congressmen. 63 of them actually beat the S&P 500 index based on information that they had before you had on it, making millions, including your own Speaker of the House, who over her career has amassed $250 million. Uh, when, when she was challenged on this, she kind of waffled back and forth and said, it's actually my husband who did the investing, not me. That's complete crap. Uh, I want to I want to peg the salaries of the congressmen 
with what the per capita is in their district. So they suffer like we suffer. Val Hoyle accepted thousands of dollars from big oil and dark money from cryptocurrency. Um, but I'm going to put the burden on you guys, the listeners. You have four great candidates here who do not accept dirty money. So we're doing what you want. And unfortunately, it seems like Val's going to win because she's playing the game that we're all trying to fight against. Prove it wrong. You know, you have four great candidates who want to work for you honestly, and we're not accepting dirty money. We just won't. We can't be bought. We want to work for you, not for lobbyists or any of those companies. Thank you, Jake. So the next question and next topic is about policing. So this we're going to this is a three part question. There are three areas I'd like to hear your thoughts on each de-escalation the militarization of our police departments and the defund the police slogan. We're starting with you, Tommy Smith. Uh, those are great questions. Uh, first of all, people should understand um, that um, defunding the police doesn't mean cutting off fu all funding to the police. It means demilitarizing the police. We don't need tanks. We don't need automatic weapons for the police. Another thing that we need to do is make sure that all police officers have at least a two-year education and law. Um, another thing that I would highly recommend that I see have seen work is that every police officer, no matter what, spend about uh, after training, spend six months to a year working correctional facilities. Whenever a police officer does that, they learn how to talk to inmates. They talk to they learn to talk to people who are outside of their own comfort zone or outside of their own community. They learn to talk to people who are on in that path or in that realm. They learn how to talk to them. So that way when they get out of education, they're just not thrown into it with a gun. You know, they learn how to talk to people. They learn to read body language. They know the law. They're there to protect and serve, not to kill. Thank you. Same question for John Selker. Yeah, great question. Um, people, you know, like when Black Lives Matter, which has been so influential, and people say, well, don't other lives matter? Well, obviously they do. But Black Lives, this is speaking about this condition of the Black Lives. In the same sense, this defund the police, as Tommy pointed out, was really misinterpreted. It's not about getting rid of all the police. It's saying that we do need public safety. But policing is not the only or the highest form of public safety. We need to have people like Cahoots who are trained to work in challenging, conflicted, tense situations where they're trying to get people to, to act responsibly and at least to, to de-escalate the situation. Of course, the police themselves need to be very well trained. And the, and the current uh, standard of training, I think, is 16 weeks uh, to become a police officer in Oregon. And this is not sufficient. Uh, uh, as Tommy said, we need to have people who really understand human rights, who really understand the laws they're enforcing, who understand the psychology of various different types of people who they're going to run into. It's an extremely complex job. And I think they should be paid for that training once they're accepted. Um, and that could be either by way of forgiving loans that they took out to get their education or to actually simply put them in training and, and get them trained on the job. But Basically, it's not all about police. It's a lot about the cahoots. It's about the other services that surround the whole problem. Thank you, John Selker. So I'm going to repeat the question. It's basically talking about policing. Uh, your thoughts on these three areas, de-escalation, the militarization of our police departments, and the defund the police slogan. We're at you, Jake Matthews. 
Yeah, there's a saying that I came across a couple of months ago. Uh, it's called ACAB, and I didn't know that it stood for All Cops Are Bad. It's a, a disgusting uh, phrase that I learned about, and uh, it's just simply not true. If someone tells you that it's about blue lives versus black lives, that person is gravely, uh, gravely misinformed. These issues are not that black and white. There's a lot of gray area there. The disgusting acts by those cops that did murder those people are reprehensible and they should be held accountable for it. But to say all cops are bad is completely wrong. And my plan will propose that there are actually no more dead cops in a green, renewable, smart city here with the proper training and the salary that goes in step with that training. Uh, it takes 3,000 hours to be a master plumber. It takes 10,000 hours to be a master electrician, but only a few hundred hours to wield a gun and to decide whether you should end someone's life. The training needs to be uh, needs to be furthered, the, which includes of an education in uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, things like that, drug addiction. We have the CAHOOTS program here, which is excellent at that, to uh, de-escalate situations where a person might be going through some sort of you know mental strife and you don't exactly need a gun there or a taser. You just need someone to help them out in that moment. The vast majority of cops are amazing people. And to have a few horrible people poison that well is a disgraceful scenario right now for uh, for the police force. And I don't agree with defunding the police like that. Thank you for that. Uh, same question for Andrew Kalik. Thank you. This is one of those areas, um, one of the few areas probably, where I can actually say this is an expertise of mine. Uh, there's so many things politicians pretend to be experts on, uh, but this is one that I actually am. I'm a trained civil rights attorney, uh, fought for constitutional policing as an ACLU attorney, fought for a true community service uh, and community safety model when I was co-chair of the Portland Committee on Community Engaged Policing. So I have a lot of experience in this realm. And when it comes to de-escalation, uh, I think there are several models across the country uh, that have seen some green shoots, some some benefits, um, and in fact, even up the road in Portland, working on de-escalation tactics has been a, a significant sort of uh, benefit to that force, despite all the challenges they have. So Congress needs to invest in these, provide resources to local and state governments, as my colleagues have said, for better training on de-escalation. Of course, it would be a lot easier to de-escalate if we didn't have so many guns on our street. Uh, and I'm proud to be endorsed by Ceasefire Oregon Action Fund. That's a gun safety group here in Oregon. Uh, for my common sense gun safety plan. You can read about it on my website, uh, but we need to get more guns off the street. That also speaks to your second question, militarization. I don't want to see cops out there in tanks. No one does and no one should, uh, but we have to understand that in, in a country of washing guns, police will want to be well-armed. And then finally, defund the police. It's bad policy. It's bad politics. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a slogan that works great on Twitter, but that's not where the real world happens. And we need to do better as Democrats to remember that. Thanks. Thank you. Same question for you, Tommy Smith. Is that right? Or no, we already we started with Tommy. Yes, we're moving on okay, to the next on. question. It's in a slightly similar theme. Um, it's about racial justice. Uh, like Oregon, this very debate is far from representative of what the country's demographics look like. As our congressman, because you are all men, as far as I know, what is your role to improve racial justice? We will start with John Selker. Our country, and many countries, but our country in particular, has a horrible racial injustice uh, history. And that, of course, slavery, uh, the actual extermination of Native Americans, and then the cultural extermination of those Native Americans who survived small, uh, smallpox, etc. So 
it shouldn't be a surprise that we have a ton of work to do in this area. And uh, first thing we look at is that even up to recent times, it's been uh, there were legal barriers for African Americans, for example, to get mortgages to buy homes, and therefore it's led to a, a lack of capitalization where they cannot pass um, their wealth on from generation to generation. So I do think that we as a country have a debt to pay with respect to having prevented major blocks of our, of our, of our people from getting access to the same economic opportunities others have had. Uh, with respect to Native Americans, we have a lot of treaties that we have signed and it's long overdue that we read those carefully and, and protect the, the fishing rights, the hunting rights, and the land rights that they are due and that we gave them. So those are just a couple of the key issues in racial justice that we have to attend to immediately. Thank you, John. Same question goes to Jake Matthews. Um, I taught high school students for about nine years and uh, the one key difference for my black students versus my white students upon graduation, I would ask them, so what do you wanna be? You know, what do you wanna major in? And you know, what do you wanna do after that? Uh, and the clearest difference there was that the white students could name probably 200 jobs. They wouldn't stop. The black students could probably name three. And one of them was sports, one of them was music, and the other one had a connection with his dad in uh, the entertainment industry. It's, it's the same world that we're occupying. We wanna make sure that the, uh, that the economic ladder works for everyone, that the same prospects out there work for everyone. Um, I was raised Indian American, obviously, uh, in an all white town. I had my first non-white friend when I was 23 years old. Uh, it was a culture shock for me. Uh, and I did not realize like the racism that was being uh, levied against me uh, at school and at work and things like that. Um, we need to have a world in a country where whatever somebody wants to do, despite the color of your skin, how tall or short you are, what's between your legs, who you go to sleep with, it doesn't matter. What matters is your work ethic and how good you are at that job. And you can't... Uh, and I'll stand in the way of anything that um, that uh, prevents that. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. Same, uh, I'll repeat the question. As our congressman, because you are all men, what is your role to uh, improve racial justice in this country? Question goes to Andrew Kalik. I think every American has a duty to do what they can to improve racial justice. Um, so this is not something that should be hoisted upon black Americans or, or Hispanic Americans. It's something that all of us carry. And indeed, perhaps those of us who have been born white and have that privilege uh, have even more of an ob uh, obligation to think about the racial uh, injustice that has clouded this nation's history um, from the founding and before uh, and actually do something about it. And so I have tried to do that at every stage of my career as a civil rights attorney at the ACLU in government, in business, trying to figure out ways to leverage the institutions of American power for the benefit of working class Americans, but also specifically for the benefit of uh, communities of color and uh, uh, across the country. I wanna say one more thing about this, and that is that I think that uh, there are various elements of racial justice that are uh, difficult to attack because of where the courts have gone on racially specific policies. So, for instance, we very well might see affirmative action uh, be eliminated by the Supreme Court this year in higher ed. And I do think that we need to think creatively about how to target our, uh, our programs for racial justice in ways that are 
facially race neutral and that pass constitutional muster uh, because we can disagree as much as we want to uh, with the Supreme Court's decisions, but we ultimately have a duty to think about what will actually create results for people. Uh, and I'll be leading the charge on that. Thanks. Same, thank you, Andrew. Same question for Tommy Smith. Um, thank you for this question. Um, kind of hard for me to talk about it, but unfortunately, I, I grew up in a household where the N-word was said just casually. Um, racial disparity was, or was laughed at, you know, in my home. And it wasn't until I joined the Navy and broke bread with others who are different from me and got to know their background and their history did I realize how I was automatically given a certain advantages. You can call it woke if you want to call it that. You know, I know that's a four-letter word, literally and figuratively um, these days. But I praise the good Lord for waking me up, you know, to my ignorance and seeing through the lies that racism, you know, teaches us. And I'm glad that I that I had to go through that point to get to the point where I am now, because now I can reach across people who still might think that way and talk to them from a point of view of, I used to think that way. Let's talk. Let me tell you how I got to here. And hopefully I can get you to have a better understanding. And that's what we need. We need better education to people who are not willing to listen, to actually start listening, to understand their advantages in this world and how other people are put at a disadvantage just because of the color of their skin. And we need to fix it. Thank you, Thank you for that, Tommy. Uh, we're going to move on. The next topic is cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is rapidly increasing in importance, outpacing the ability of local and state governments to protect Americans' privacy and data. Even powerful, high-profile people can be targeted. How can the federal government protect Americans from both foreign and domestic hackers? We're going to start with Jake Matthews. Thanks for this. Um, World War III will be fought on our phones. It won't be fought with uh, nukes or hydrogen bombs. It'll be fought on our phones. They've now collected enough data uh, on us for free uh, that we have just um, allowed them to do by signing other terms and services. And no one is safe in this matter. Um, Mohammed bin Salman personally sent a Pegasus uh, malware to Jeff Bezos's phone. He personally via text, and that's how his um, his um, affair got released to uh, the son, because the leader, the prince of one kingdom, sent it to him, the CEO of a huge, huge corporation. If those people are not safe, you and I certainly are not, and we're in a state right now where the internet is completely being compromised, where all of our data is being collected by these big corporations, and we have no fight in the matter. Furthermore, we have a Congress that isn't abreast of the issues at all. When they bring in CEOs from Silicon Valley, they can barely keep up with the conversation here. I think it should be a requirement, as Neil deGrasse Tyson said, to not have so many lawyers in Congress. I know we're making the law there, but you don't need 99% of them to be attorneys. You need more scientists, more computer scientists, more farmers, more loggers, more teachers, more nurses, more doctors, more students. This is how you get a well-faceted um, uh, view of what's going on there. And I got a couple of emails from some computer scientists at the University of Oregon asking about this. Cybersecurity is the next threat. It's the next 9-11. We're seeing evidence of this, by the way, when Crimea um, attacked the gas pipelines in uh, the southeast of America. That's just the start. Thank you, Jake Matthews, for that. We're going to move on to Andrew Kalik. 
You could read a cybersecurity report that I wrote almost a decade ago. It's on my website. It's linked under the public safety tab on issues. And what that report talked about was just how vulnerable we were, both as individuals, but also as collectives, meaning our governments, our local, state, county, and federal government uh, to cyber attacks. And we need a combination of both legislation and education, because the difficult thing about a cyber uh, security uh, as, a, as a sort of vulnerability is that it all comes down to the weakest link. All it takes is one person who doesn't understand how to protect their data and all of us can be exposed. Uh, so legislation and education are extremely important pieces of this. On the legislative side, I have worked on federal data privacy legislation. Right now, we still don't have it from Congress. We are way behind the eight ball on this. And instead, it, we've left states to come up with their own things. It's created a very confusing and expensive patchwork of laws. We can do better than that, and we should. Lastly, what we really need in the cyber warfare arena is a Geneva Convention for cyber. Um, right now, we don't have it. And we shouldn't wait until something catastrophic happens, like Jake's uh, mentioning, to put rules in place that govern the use of cyber capabilities in warfare. Uh, we waited, of course, till after calamity to get to something like Geneva or the United Nations. Um, and we shouldn't wait uh, to do that on cyber. And America is the only country who can truly lead in getting an international and global consensus on that. Thanks. We are talking about cybersecurity. The question is, how can the federal government protect Americans from both foreign and domestic hackers? And it is to you, Tommy Smith. Um, first of all, we need to stop being reactionary and be more proactive when it comes to cyber threats. Too often in this country, do we wait till something befalls a company or or us personally before something happens. I deal with this all the time within my own realm of business of personal banking is I see people come in, the elderly come in all the time saying that they've been hacked. And um, it's really about education. It's about, okay, what do you do? What can you, how do you stop this from happening to you personally? The federal government, like I said, needs to be more proactive when it comes to that. We have the NSA. The NSA has some brilliant people. We need to give them a little bit more uh, tools to, for them to go after these people. We need to stop corporations from just taking all our information like Google and selling it to the highest bidder out there. Uh, just as recently as John Oliver showed that he can purchase the politicians of his local area to try to squeeze them to do what he wants them to do. Well, you can't have that. We can't have people just being able to buy your personal information and extort it, extort it for their own personal game. We, once I get in there, we're, I'm going to pro propose some more federal regulation against our privacy being um, sold also uh, to also be more proactive in cyber attacks. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy Smith. The same question goes to John Selker. Yeah, um, you know, one of the shocking things about Congress is how long it took to deal with spam email, to deal with, uh, with, with spam telephone calls. They'd have these people who were making millions of telephone, unwanted telephone calls. They had every possibility of stopping it and they didn't. It took them years. And this is, uh, I think, something that we have to learn from that the, there are many, many ways in which uh, the electronic communication we have now inconveniences and really takes away from our ability to use the technologies which could benefit our lives. Cybersecurity is, um, you know, it's one of those things that is quite uh, shrouded in, in mystery in terms of what is going on. We've seen a lot of, of, of ransom uh, attacks and particularly in the, um, a, a couple of years ago, I have a feeling there's quite a bit of money being spent on that. But 
it is notable that people who are scammed, there seems to be no recourse for them, no federal or state um, enforcement where they can go and say, hey, go catch those guys. And with respect to international uh, people, this is often overseas. And we as a country are a big enough player that we can enforce international cooperation and we have to bring it to bear. And that goes for all of our trade. There should be fair trade. And one of the pieces of fair trade is making sure that other countries that are going to trade with us are responsible for their people's actions. And they are taken. And we lost billions of dollars during the COVID crisis to Nigeria in this very simple way. Thank you, John. So uh, I'm very excited now to introduce the lightning round. And uh, this has been a really wonderful exchange. Um, these are going to be some big issues, certainly reduced to a simple yes or no. But the idea, again, is the voters can hear from you and reach out to discover your more detailed positions. I think that we have nine or ten of them. So please raise your hand uh, expediently and clearly if you uh, agree with these statements. If you believe the federal minimum wage should increase from $7.25 to at least $15, raise your hand. I see Jake, Matt, all four of you. If you believe the state of Oregon minimum wage should increase to at least $15 statewide, raise your hand. All four of you. If you believe Roe v. Wade should be codified in law by Congress to protect abortion rights, raise your hand. That is all four of you. If you believe a single-payer single health care system such as Medicare for All is a better option than, other, than our current largely private and employer-based system, raise your hand. All four of you again. If you believe the federal government should generally leave gun rights up to the states, raise your hand. I see Jake Matthews. Thank you. If you believe the Biden administration has ensured a sufficient amount of rights for undocumented immigrants, raise your hand. Nobody. None of you believe that they have done so. This is a very coastal district, meaning climate change is especially relevant. If you will commit to bringing home emergency preparedness resources and proactive climate policy in your first term, raise your hand. All four of you, thank you. If you believe the federal government should invest enough revenue into education that all Americans can access free pre-K and a two-year community college, raise your hand. That's John Selker, Andrew Kallick, and Tommy Smith. And finally, you are all running as Democrats at a time when congressional races generally exist in a two-party system. Raise your hand if you've ever voted for a Republican before, including in local nonpartisan races where party affiliation was not labeled. I see Tommy Smith and Andrew Kallick say they have voted for Republicans before. Thanks for participating in that round. We have just a couple more questions left before uh, closing statements. This question is about the arts. Though the issue of the arts does not get discussed in politics much, Congress funds performing arts venues, programs, and arts education frequently. On my show, Broken Class, I tend to ask musicians for their thoughts on social issues and sociopolitical leaders about their favorite music. What are some of the artists, and I would love to hear names, that you personally enjoy, and how will you help foster creativity? as a representative. This goes first to Andrew Kallick. Thanks so much. Uh, I am a student of history and I, and I 
uh, like to remind people that during the New Deal, um, part of the genius was not just priming the pump of a depressed economy uh, and building up labor rights through the National Labor Relations Act, Social Security, and, and, and uh, measures of this kind, but also investing millions of dollars in a federal arts project that employed tens of thousands of artists and expanded public art throughout the country. This is photography, painting, all sorts of public artworks that we still enjoy a century later. And what's amazing about that is that America decided to make that investment at a time in which we were broke. We had no money. Um, and yet now uh, we are making no more investment in the National Endowment for the Arts than we were in the 1980s. It's the same amount, despite the fact that we've had you know, 40 years worth of inflation. So I think Congress has a real role to play here. Uh, and it's a role that not only speaks to Congress's uh, opportunity to, to boost the economics of art, but also the societal glue um, that that art creates and the fact that it allows us to see more of ourselves. Uh, now, I, I am not an artist myself. I've never been known to have a particularly great uh, or refined taste in music. Um, but uh, I often think about uh, one of my favorites, Taylor Swift on the campaign trail. And one of her lines in particular speaks to me, which is, never be so polite, you forget your power. Never wield such power. You forget to be polite. So that's what I try to do on the campaign trail. Thanks. Thank you, Swifty Andrew Kalik. <laughs> Next question. Uh, same question for Tommy Smith. First of all, as far as my favorite artists, I can sit there and say that I was a sinner until I discovered the Reverend Horton Heat and, <laughs> and Martini Time. I love that band. But I just love art, period. Um I'm kind of a geek that I, in my spare time, I try to memorize Shakespeare monologues. Um, something about the passion and the glory behind some of those monologues just, just is awesome. You know, one of the greatest disservices that we did to this in this country is take arts out of schools. You know, we need to have a flourishing art department in every school. Um, that's how we foster imagination. And through imagination, that's how we get innovation. And it's absolutely critical, absolutely critical that we fund more arts and projects that are out there. Uh, the, the human imagination is absolutely brilliant. And if we can just get more of it, you know, the problem that we have with a lot of social media and people being on their phones all the time is that we're losing out on that capability of dreaming, you know, and we really need to foster those things because it is those dreamers like us here on this forum, we're all dreamers here that is going to make this country better is how we're going to move on to the next era. That is going to be the next chapter. That is this great country. And I, for one, look forward to fighting for the arts as your Congressman. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. Question. Though the issue of the arts doesn't get discussed in politics much, Congress funds performing arts venues, programs, and arts education frequently. Um, what are some of the artists? And I'd love to hear names that you personally enjoy, and how will you help foster creativity? Question now goes to John Selker. Uh, yeah, um, I wanna just unblur for a moment and show you my wall here. Um, how do I unblur that? Choose virtual background. Oh, anyway. Um, it would be in filters under virtual backgrounds. I can pause yeah. the timer real quick. Yeah, anyway, so um, let me do that. Uh, choose, choose video filter, there we go. And we go none. Okay, let's try that. Does that work? Choose video filters, none. Oh, that one's not it. Oh, well, hooey. Uh, video, background filters, video, let's see, took. 
Uh, anyway, sorry. Well, I will. Uh, we will uh, not hold things up. Normally, it's right here. I think I have a different version. I choose. Uh, where is it? Anyway, well, don't video settings maybe. No. Anyway, fine. Well, I'll just say that right behind me are paintings of um, of Chile and around the world that my wife made. She's an artist. She has an MFA. She teaches uh, art at the, at the Benton Center. These are gorgeous paintings, much more pretty than me to look at. Uh, and then I have a minor in sculpture. Uh, so uh, I, uh, I, I turn bowls out of wood, and this will probably come out unfocused as well. But I turn bowls out of trees that have fallen down in our neighborhood, and I give these away, and I sell them for uh, to make money for the... the um, food bank. And I, I've actually sold $20,000 in those bowls and given it all to the food bank in the last two years. I love making things. I'm a maker. And my favorite artists are John Prine, uh, Banksy, and Ansel Adams. And by the way, I was a photographer for the Oregonian uh, while I was at Reed College. I, and so I've always been a passionate photographer as well. Thank you, John. Coincidentally, the only paintings of mine that look good are blurred out. <laughs> I'm going to work on getting my background not blurred while we're talking just to get that sorted. Same question to Jacob Matthews. Uh, I'm very lucky to have made my living in my 20s uh, in the arts. I was a working writer, actor, and producer in Hollywood. I had a TV show watched by 20 million people called Wisdom of the Crowd on CBS. It got canceled because our lead is uh, one of the uh, Me Too people, so it got canceled halfway through. And, and then um, about 20 commercials in four different markets internationally. Um, I produced a film called uh, The News Today, which was in response to uh, the Pulse nightclub shooting uh, in support of LGBTQ rights uh, and a lot of things regarding race as well. Uh, the arts is all there is to life. It's like the reason why we do everything. And the arts can be found in everything. If you're a farmer, lo uh, logger, nurse, it doesn't matter. We take an artistic approach to things and we take pride in our work here. Um, our goal is to bring more movies and commercials to Oregon. We shot most of my stuff in Vancouver because of the tax breaks and in Los Angeles and in uh, New York and London. Um, I know now that the, um, the tax rebate just got bumped up from a 10% to 20% for in-state payroll for movies and television, but I think we can do even better than that. And uh, for the film incentives, we can go more than $20 million on that. Uh, Making more movies here will um, incentivize people to work, not just as actors, writers, producers, and all that stuff, but also still photography and all forms of arts, uh, you know, hair, makeup, wardrobe, all that good stuff. Art is life. It's all we have to keep us alive. And my favorite band ever is Radiohead. And I think some of you might be like, ugh, but they saved my life. So I love Radiohead. So I think we have one more question, and then we're going to get to closing statements. Uh, so this topic is a disability. The disabled community represents a massively wide range of experiences, almost all of which are overlooked by government. How would you fight in Congress to enact equity and dignity for Oregonians with disabilities and those who experience exceptionalities? We're going to start with Tommy Smith. Um, I don't really like to talk much about this, but I am uh, a disabled vet. Um, when I got out of the Navy, I was trying just to get... Um, 30% because if you got 30% then you got a break uh, as far as your education and, and got uh, accepted for the uh, post 9-11 GI Bill. Uh, when they came back and said I was 60%, I was like, oh man, what's wrong with me? <laughs> so I, I understand, you know, like the the pain that some of the, some of these people, uh, some people go through, but it's, there's a lot more that needs to be done, more accessibility to more different buildings are out there, better parking situations, uh, adequate uh, housing, 
uh, like for everybody else that needs to be addressed as your con as a congressman i will be working for disability rights not only for the va for everybody that are that is out there you know uh i i had a customer whose husband um started getting alzheimer's but he started getting to the point where he wasn't actually uh, qualified for any kind of medical assistance but she got a bill for a hundred thousand dollars and that's all they saved up and she was talking about being in the 90 her 90s and have to go back to work because to take care of her husband as your congressman i'm going to i'm going to fight to keep things like that from happening thank you thank you same question for john selker yeah um I'm the primary uh, caregiver contact person for a member of my family who has schizophrenia. And um, taking care of people with mental disabilities is, uh, is just difficult. And the thought I've given to it over the years is that not always are family members the most um, able to, be, to give that help because these relationships are very complicated. And what we have look at when we see alcohol drug, other drugs, and mental disability, what it takes is people building relationships with those people, and then able to have the trust where they can get those people into the services they need. And it could be housing, drug uh, addiction care, and uh, all the other uh, mental health care um, aspects. And so it really comes down to, to, to relationships. And when we look at the caseload of our um, social workers, they're typically at the 100 to 150 people per caseworker. Now, do a little bit of math. There's 40 hours of working in a week. And if you've got a, a 140 people or 120 people, that's a third of an hour each. It's not going to work. So we have to make the investment in people who are skilled, who can build those relationships, get the trust, and bring those people to service and advocate for, advocate for them. So it's really, as a society, we have to make that investment at the federal level and at the state level. Thank you for that. We are talking about what can be done to help the disabled community. The question is, how would you fight in Congress to enact equity and dignity for Oregonians with disabilities and those who experience exceptionalities? And it goes to you, Jake William, Jake Matthews. Uh, without giving away too many specifics because of their um, privacy, I have very close family uh, with autism, Asperger's. I had one with bipolar and depression who ended up killing himself and I wasn't there for him in time. Uh, and we have family that have been in uh, horrific car accidents and are now physically uh, disabled. As I said earlier, we're a species in our adolescence here. The worth of a person is not if they're, you know, bipedal and kind of keeping up with whatever the norm is here. Stephen Hawking was in, a, was in a wheelchair his whole life and he's one of the greatest minds ever. I hope we won't lose a mind like that. And that's the key here. With something like a green, smart, renewable city, we can focus on how the brain works. With something like the Connectome Project, we can find out what a person is really going through if they have a blueprint of their own brain and we can help them through some issues here. And for work and things like that and access, whatever they want, they get, because we can't lose any of these voices. We may be living in a world here where somebody who's on the spectrum, that they are in the know. And people like us who aren't on the spectrum are actually out of it, but we treat them instead with kids' gloves, acting like they're special, oh, look, you're special, but maybe they're seeing something that we aren't seeing yet. And, you know, we're the ones who need to you know, catch up to them. We don't quite know how the brain works yet. It's still the most interesting thing in the entire cosmos here. And this is how we can help people out in the long term here. Thank you, Jake Matthews. And then uh, finally, Andrew Kalik. Thank you, Patty. Thank you for the question. Uh, in law school, I represented people who were seeking Social Security disability 
benefits. And that was a very eye-opening experience for me, not just because there were all sorts of people who came across my desk and who I represented, but just to see the amount of red tape that was thrown in their way to get a benefit that many of them were entitled to. Um, you had to really run a gauntlet. And so as a member of Congress, I think it's our op- obligation to make sure that people can access these uh, benefits that they're entitled to without having to uh, go through hoops, run over hurdles, um, all of that. And we need to fund civil legal services to help people do uh, achieve just that. Now, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, uh, I guess, 30 plus years ago now. Uh, and that was an extraordinary bipartisan effort. But what hasn't happened is there hasn't been a lot of funding since then to help both public and private facilities actually achieve ADA compliance. I think Congress needs to do a better job of that. And then lastly, I want to talk a little bit about flexibility. We have learned over the past couple of years of the pandemic just how much flexibility can work in the private sector. People always thought it would, uh, but now we know it can. And flexibility can provide so many accommodations that are not only reasonable, but actually help people of all abilities uh, be more productive and and lead, lead happier lives. And so I think uh, we need a, a Congress member who recognizes that and who values flexibility in the workplace and in public accommodation. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get to closing statements. Uh, we're going to do it in reverse order from how we opened, just to, you know, to be fair. So we're going to start with uh, Jacob Matthews. How much time do we have? Two minutes. Thanks, guys, for having me, first of all. I love this. I love the whole setup and everything and everyone who's tuning in at home. Uh, if there's one thing that I could convince you guys of is that as I've gone across our district, you guys have tremendous potential. We all do. This entire district has tremendous potential. But we are being let down by a corrupt Congress that simply doesn't care about us anymore. They haven't for a long, long time. We have congressmen that can serve for 34 years and make $5.3 million during that time, while the per capita of this district only went from $17,000 when he got hired to $24,000 now. No wonder why we're infighting. No wonder why we're so angry. No wonder why we can't afford things like the arts, to have time for the arts, when we're just trying to make ends meet here. When the price of gas is going up so incredibly high, and there's nothing we can do about it. When our data is being collected, and there's nothing we can do about it. It's a world that we're living in now, where our hands are completely tied. And it's also by design here. The news is keeping us so angry at each other. They're they're, um, allowed to engage in sensational journalism without any recourse for it. Who suffers there? Only you and me. It doesn't really matter what it doesn't really matter what any of us actually propose here until we completely fix Congress. The best way to do this, as a guy who majored in macroeconomics, is to follow the money. These people can't just be living comfortably while you and I suffer here. We're going to peg their salary against what the per capita is here. We're going to stop insider trading. We're going to build a green, renewable city like it's being done all around the world, and we're going to get ahead of it. And we're going to raise the per capita to $100,000 at least by 2030. That is a promise. There's a plan for that on my website why not Oregon.com? And that's the question we should be asking here. Why not Oregon? Why not us? It doesn't have to be, you know, Boston, New York, LA, or anything like that. It can be us. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be, excuse me, it doesn't have to be Portland. It can be us. We can be the beacon for the whole world on how a prosperous constituency can live when we have real representation in Congress. Thank you so much, Jacob Matthews. Um, next, we're going to move on to John Selker. Thanks very much. Um, 
my mother survived the Holocaust and she went on to start Planned Parenthood of Southwest Washington and was an activist from the core. And it inspired me and my family to make the world better. Out of college, I worked in Silicon Valley, but those problems were not going to be only solved with me. Anyone could solve them. So I flew myself to Africa, worked for UNICEF and a bunch of other people working on improving the cooking stoves and open fires um, that were used you know, across the continent. And we saw there in 85 in Kenya that water was truly the, the, the key to life. And that's when I became dedicated to that. I now work in 22 countries and I push the envelope every day, with new technologies, new approaches to manage water. My Oregon company was the first to use fiber optics to solve major water problems for salmon recovery and identifying sources of pollution. I will be the only earth scientist in the House or Senate. And in that position, I will put our earth first. I bring 40 years as an educator here at Oregon State and beyond where I will put students first. And we need to have free preschool through community college. We need to forgive student loans for those going into service, such as teaching, nursing, social work, and public defenders. And so these are key theses. I was a lead caregiver for my wife when following her accident. And I learned what needs to change in our healthcare. And fundamentally, we need to put the patients first. Put the first earth scientist and problem-solving engineer into Congress. John Selker, that's me. I hope to win with solutions for you and our community and bring a whole new perspective and position to Congress. In that sense, I am the first generation. I am the next generation in Congress, not a lawyer, not a, 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 a steeped in, 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 in politics. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, John Selker. So we're doing closing statements. It goes to you, Tommy Smith. First of all, uh, I'd just like to say thank you once again for having me on and for the other candidates for being here. Um, you look at this particular podcast and what we're doing here, and it's for the little guys, is it not? You know, it's it's for the people who don't get the millions of dollars to run you know, we are the American dream here. You know, we are trying to fight for our democracy and currently our democracy is under attack. And all I implore is that if you're out there and you're about ready to make your vote, that you vote for the person who's gonna fight the hardest, who's gonna work for all voices in our great district from the staunch liberal to the most uh, conservative out there. That you understand where everybody's not, you're not gonna make everyone happy, but you're gonna do what's best for your constituents and only your constituents. Don't work hard for yourself. Work hard for your constituents. Being a local kid, knowing the area and understanding both sides, I think gives me a unique perspective in that. I also like to think that having my faith base, you know, right now uh, will help us and move forward in this country. Right now, Christianity is being used as a weapon in D.C., and we need someone to actually go there to use Christianity, to take Christianity out of government like it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be secular and not a religious-based uh, institutions that are out there. We need someone who can go out there, who can, who can slap these people in the face with scripture and to call them out for who they are, liars and cheats, you know, and I just believe that I am... I'm that candidate. I just want to sit there and say thank you for the gentleman that joined me uh, here today. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for everybody who is listening. I, tr I am truly blessed. Uh, thank you. I love you all. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Tommy Smith. And finally, Andrew Kalik. Thank you very much, Patty. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you again, uh, fellow candidates, uh, for being here with me on a Sunday uh, afternoon. And thank you to those of you tuning in uh, and listening. I'm, I'm very grateful. This is a once-in-a-generation election. And I know Peter DeFazio was on earlier talking about uh, how he is approaching things. But the polling about the mood of the electorate could not be more clear. Over 70% of Oregonians think that we're on the wrong track. A plurality of Oregonians prefer someone outside the political spectrum to someone in it when they're voting on their ballot this year. And they want someone focused on the future, not trying to solve the problems of the past with the playbook of the past. And so while, of course, I deeply respect uh, Peter's uh, acumen and he's a heck of a politician, uh, he's been elected many times. The truth is that this year, more than perhaps any other, we do not need another politician who's coming from inside the party apparatus, who's the establishment favorite. That is not the way to beat Alex Scarlatos. It's not the way to inspire confidence um, among our electorate. And it's not the way to make sure that this seat continues to fulfill progressive priorities. I am trying to bring a new generation of leadership to Congress and an independent mind, one that has been influenced and informed by the fact that I grew up in a home where my parents were public school teachers and put family uh, and, and community service at the heart of our lives. One that's been informed by the strategic thinking of the ACLU, where I cut my teeth as a young civil rights attorney, and one that's been informed by experience in government and in business. I've tried to put together the skills to do this job, to be a member of Congress for you and not the powerful. And that's why I'm asking you to send me to Congress as that new generation of leadership. I'd be honored to earn your vote. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew Kalik. We would like to say thank you to all of you who have participated today. We are more empowered to do this again in future races. If you support both the Spent the Rent podcast and Broken Class podcast available everywhere you get your podcasts. So please give feedback, rate, review, and subscribe to both shows to support independent media. For more info, go to strpod.com. We do have, both of us have a real archive of great discussions with local leaders and thinkers and artists. And as it was previously mentioned, the mainstream media, in my opinion, has too much of a profit motive based on making us hate each other, making us angry. And so when you support and watch us or listen to us, you're taking time away from them. Um, I watched you all debate uh, with uh, Alabdraba, Hoyle, and Canning uh, here in Eugene, um, where I am in Eugene. And uh, the former Eugene Mayor Kitty Piercy said, there are no fuzzy brains in this group. I absolutely concur. You all brought intellect, uh, respect, passion, and uh, great ideas to the table. I want to tell the electorate and our audiences that the election is May 17th, but ballots are going out in the mail this week. And since these candidates who accepted our forum and participated are all Democrats uh, in our closed primary system, you must be registered as a Democrat by April 26th, which is in two days uh, as we live stream this, uh, in order to give them your vote. So please go to the Oregon Secretary of State website to register or check your registration. Thank you all so much. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you. Peace, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Take care.